this week on the Backtable Podcast. Well, that first time I was there was quite memorable. You can imagine as a newly minted attending, I didn't really know what to expect. I also had no money. That year, it was, it was in Santa Fe and my attending, Charlie Semba, was going. So I asked him about it and he said, well, yeah, why don't you come along and I'll get a hotel room that we can share. And he knew I didn't have any money. And he says, no, you could just crash my hotel room. I thought, great. So we end, we show up there and it turns out the hotel room only had one bed. <laughs> so, so Charlie Sub and I shared a bed for a few days. <laughs> wow. We probably could have fit two more people in that bed because I think we were each hanging off the couch <laughs> or our ends of the bed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I'm a private practice interventional radiologist based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. This episode is brought to you by Boston Scientific. Boston Scientific has just released the legacy study data confirming Therosphere as a new adjuvant or standalone therapy in treating HCC. 98.6% of patients responded with just one treatment as Therosphere with 93% overall survival of three years. Visit bostonscientific.com forward slash legacy to learn more. Today, we have an excellent episode lined up. Our guest today is Dr. Dan Z. Dr. Z is joining us here from Palo Alto in California. In case you don't know anything about interventional radiology, Dr. Z is a big deal. Our topic today is Western Angiographic and Interventional Society in honor of the 50th anniversary of Western Angio. And to help us with this topic, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Dan Z. Dan, welcome. Thanks. So I'm really excited to talk about Western Angio because it's a conference that I've been going to for essentially my entire professional life. And I think it represents a lot of the things that are good and right about IR, especially when compared to some of the more established and well-known specialties. I like to think that, you know, everything about interventional radiology is good and right, but I'm, I'm sure that Western Angio represents some of the, the best of, of that, of our practice. Before we get into it, Dan, can we talk a little bit about your background, your training, and, and what your current practice looks like now? Sure. So I'm not a born Westerner. I was actually born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I went to college on the East Coast. I ended up going to medical school at Stanford, uh, where I also did a PhD in bi biophysics, doing magnetic resonance spectroscopy, which is not very applicable to my current uh, <laughs> career. Then I did internship at Cal Pacific in San Francisco, which is the old Stanford hospital when it was founded in the 1890s. And then I went to UCSF for radiology residency and back to Stanford for, in for fellowship. And as is often true with people that are kept on staff where they did their fellowship, I was on call the night of June 30th as a fellow. And at the stroke of midnight, I became the on call attending. So I've been there now for 23 years. That's fantastic. You went from being the on call fellow to the on call attending. And then 23 years later, you know, you're, yeah, yeah you're where you are now. <laughs> you're where you are now, the on call attending. Yeah. Well, that's great. Like those that can't do teach, right? 
And so that is essentially what our mission is at Stanford. We call ourselves a quaternary care center because it's sort of a boutique hospital. It's not a very large hospital, but it's physically attached to a lot of basic science departments and the rest of the university, including the engineering school. So our practice very much focuses on cutting edge stuff. We are situated on the border of Palo Alto and Menlo Park, which is the center of high-tech industry in Silicon Valley, as well as venture capital in Menlo Park. And so we have a lot of interaction with like-minded people who want to be at the cutting edge of technology and of medicine. So uh, our practice now has 10 attendings. We had up to six fellows, although now that we're integrating uh, the IRDR pathway that we're down to three fellows this year, uh, because we're going to have three PGY5 and three PGY6 fellows eventually. That's great. That's great. So moving a little bit from your practice of where you are now, uh, you said you've been going to Western Angio maybe for your entire career. Can we kind of talk about some, you know, past to current roles that you've held with uh, Western Angiographic Society? Yeah, sure. So I first went to Western Angio my first year out as an attending. And I had heard about Western Vascular and other scientific organizations that started with the word Western. And they were all pretty, you know, suit and tie, uh, formal, stuffy occasions. And I kind of figured that Western Angel would be the same way. So I actually submitted a scientific abstract, and which got accepted. But I didn't realize that that's really not the format of Western Angel. But at least it got me an invitation to go. And basically, I was the only person there with a coat and tie. And I was very quickly reprimanded that if I kept that tie on, someone would find a pair of scissors and relieve me of that tie. So that was back in 1997. That's great. That's great. And so, so jumping forward from 1997, your first scientific abstract presented at Western Angio, what are some of the roles that you fulfilled since then and, and some of the ways like you became more involved uh, with the uh, Western Angio Society? Yeah, so in the mid-2000s, I became more and more involved with the programming. And so uh, I actually did the uh, program chair function for one year, which is uh, followed by some officer years, eventually being uh, president and past president. And eventually, I also did uh, one year give the Charles Daughter lecture. And again, the Charles Daughter lecture sounds like a big deal, like a black tie event. But I was one of the only people in the room, I think, that still had long pants on. Most people had shorts on. That's great. And, and so for, for those, and myself included, I, I've never been to the Western NGO uh, conference. Can you kind of talk a little bit, and I know we've done a little bit so far, but can you kind of talk a little bit about to the atmosphere and what sets uh, Western NGO apart from like the other conferences, like in terms of both like either material presenters or just overall vibe that people get from the conference? Well, I think the Western and Western Angio was taken quite seriously. And 50 years ago, when Western Angio first started, it was just a bunch of people that were friends that had common interests and got together over golf or tennis or beer or barbecue or whatever, and just basically showed each other cases. It was almost like an Angio club with about 20 or 30 people. But unlike their counterparts on the East Coast, it there was a a real premium put on fun 
and, and informality. So a routine that every other year, Western Angio meets in Hawaii and every other year it meets on the continent. And even when it meets on the continent, we don't meet at, you know, the airport Hilton or something like that. We actually go to nice resorts where people have the time to sit down and, and break bread with old friends and talk about not just interventional radiology, but each other's careers and families and friends, you know, where kids are going to college, who we are recruiting for our practices. And it really is a, a friendly social gathering in addition to a very intensely focused IR meeting. So that, that touched on something that I was kind of interested in talking about in that there's a lot of people who go to Western NGO talk about how fun Western NGO is, how informal it is, but at the same time, the core mission, it, I'm sure, is always tied into the education of interventional radiology. Can you talk about that blending of trying to mix like the education component with the informality of it and, and like what, what parts of it make them make Western NGO so good about the education, but at the same time, being, at the same time, maintaining its kind of fun and casual atmosphere? Well, Western Angio still has the format that everyone is in one room. So it's not like a Circe or an SIR where you might have 25 different sessions going on at the same time and you have to pick and choose which one to go to. So at Western Angio, it's single file. And the speakers uh, know that they're going to have the entire meeting in their audience. Uh, and so I think people actually put a lot of effort into making good talks, into making them current, into discussing controversies. And the, the speakers are chosen very carefully as well to be people who either have a track record, who have published a lot, and also because it's such a friendly crowd, it also, it's also a great opportunity for up-and-coming younger folks who don't have as much experience on the podium to work with a mentor, for instance, and to actually get in front of a crowd of a couple hundred people and give a talk. The format Traditionally has been Saturday night, we have a get-together, drinks and hors d'oeuvres. And then Sunday, there's a whole day of meeting. But Monday through Thursday, the, the remainder of the meeting, all four days, the meeting only takes place in the morning from 7.30 or 8 in the morning to about noon. There may be a lunch or something like that, but the afternoons are intentionally kept free. And you can imagine that this would never happen at a, a more stuffy or scientific meeting. Uh, sure. And and obviously, if you're in Hawaii, oftentimes with your family, you don't want to be stuck in lectures all day for five days in a row. And so not only are there informal get-togethers of, of people just hanging out together, going to the beach, going hiking, whatever, but every year there's a golf tournament. Most years there's a tennis tournament. Some years there's a fishing tournament. And there's, I mean, th these are serious tournaments. There's a lot of bragging rights that that are involved uh, and a lot of trash talking, uh, a lot of backroom negotiations and <laughs> coaching of, of good players and that sort of thing. But it's all good fun. And again, this is not something you would find at SIR or Cersei. That's funny. Alliances are formed in the back room to like cultivate the best teams to, to go out and win it, I assume. Oh, absolutely. And, and I am certainly one of the most guilty of that. Uh, I think my, my team won the golf tournament I don't even remember, something like eight out of 10 years running. And it's not because I'm a great golfer, because anyone who has golfed with me knows I'm not a great golfer. 
but I know a few great books. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes all the difference. Oh, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So that, that's something that I did not realize that all the conferences take place in a single conference room. And so basically, whenever there's a presenter, there, there's only one place to go. So everyone just goes to the same place to hear um, whatever's on the menu for the day. And, and then that's the, that's the lecture that you'll hear. With that big of a, a size, like, can you paint a picture a little bit about like the, the size of the audience in the room and, and whether there's a lot of back and forth between the presenter and then some people in the audience? Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, even though Western Andrews has been around for 50 years, it's been intentionally kept small. So on a busy year at an attractive venue in Hawaii, for instance, we might get somewhere between 250 and 300 people that sign up. But of course, not everyone shows up for the lectures either. So you might have 200 people in the room. And people in general pay attention. Uh, the the fact that there's only one lecture going on is also an opportunity for everyone to really get the pulse of the entire field of IR. So for instance, some people know I spend a lot of my time working on interventional oncology, and I don't spend much time at all on uterine artery embolization or AVMs or other parts of our field that are also very important and very exciting with new developments. And at a big meeting like SIR Cersei, I'm probably going to spend most of my time at sessions concentrating on interventional oncology. But at Western Angio, I can go to the room and I can learn, okay, what has happened actually in the field of women's health and uterine artery embolization the past few years? Because I did not have exposure to that at the, at the more intense you know, SIR, Cersei type scientific meetings. So getting into that a little bit, is, is there a different experience or what, can you speak a little bit about the, the experience of, is the, the conference more geared towards people early on in their career or people later in their career, trainees, or does, does it really have a lot to offer everybody in that the, the lectures can be as comprehensive as they need to be, but still like, you know, a trainee can take away a lot of, of talking points, just like, you know, an old dog who's seen just about everything, you know, get getting up to date with some new things that are coming out in the literature. I assume you've liked dogs if you're calling me an old dog, but. No, <laughs> the present company excluded. <laughs> so, well, that's a really interesting question because that is something that Western Angio is in the process of evolving. Because I think traditionally the people that have attended Western Angio have been the old dogs. They have been the people who have been in practice, whether private practice or academic, but there have, there have been very few attendees who are still in training. And that's something that I think just in the past few years, the officers of Western Angel have started to change, in part because the field, of course, is changing now that we're becoming our own specialty. But also, I think people are starting to recognize that there are benefits to having new blood, that with social media going on, with familiarity with genomics and proteomics and that sort of thing. There are a lot of things that the old dogs have heard of, but don't really understand. And so we really do need new blood in the, in the organization as well. Uh, but having said so, it's not, again, it's not a forum where the trainee is going to be shouted down or, or glared at if she stands up and asks a question of one of the old dogs. That there really is a very friendly, collaborative air in, in the meeting. That's fantastic. So 
in in your estimation, what do you find to be the biggest difference? And maybe it's maybe it's just culture, but what do you find to be the biggest difference between uh, Western NGO and you know a conference like we we've referenced SIR and and Cersei? Again, I think the culture is the main difference. Also, the wardrobe is different, particularly if it's in Hawaii. Uh, people literally show up with shorts and muscle shirts and flip flops. And the only reason to put on more clothing is if the air conditioning is turned too low. And I think if any of us showed up to SIR, even if SIR were in a place like San Diego where it's warm, if I showed up in flip-flops to SIR, I think people would look askance. You know, even I think, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people can remember um, Austin just a couple of years back where, you know, it was still, uh, still quite, quite formal for presenters and attendees the like in a relatively warm atmosphere. Yes, th- this is true. Uh, with live music and uh, barbecue and that sort of thing. But still, uh, I think because uh, it is a more scientific forum, there is more representation from overseas at a meeting like SIR. It has to be more f- formal. Right. Now, at Western Anjo, very few people actually present original science. So it's not a forum where people submit abstracts that are reviewed and out of the hundreds or thousands that are received that the best are, are chosen. Western Angel is mostly uh, 10 or 15 or 20 minute presentations that are more like review articles uh, that summarize the field, including what has happened in the past year or two in terms of progress that has been made. How often do you show up to a lecture at Western ANGO that, that's within interventional oncology? And, and as you're listening to it, you pick up something new or some pearl that you're able to bring in and incorporate into your practice at Stanford? I, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that I learned something from every talk. Again, the, the speakers are chosen very carefully. Even if they're relatively inexperienced, they then have new eyes on something that has become very routine for me and for other old dogs. And so there are a lot of times that in the discussion that people are scratching their heads and thinking, hey, you know, I've been doing the same thing for 20 years. Maybe I've been doing it wrong. Sure, sure. In in your opinion, for, for Western Angio and, you know, someone who helps organize and, and is part of the leadership of, of where the society goes, what are some things that you think that Western Angio can be doing better or change to move in a slightly different direction to, to better serve like the mission of Western Angio? One thing we've noticed in the past few years is that the word has gotten out to people who don't live in the West that Western Angio is a great venue every year and a great uh, opportunity to uh, share our work. And so every year we get these these desperate pleas for people that live east of the Mississippi River saying, look, I know I'm not, I don't work in the West. I didn't, wasn't trained in the West, but I flew out of the West one time on my way to Asia. So can you <laughs> please get me an invitation to speak in Western Anjo. And, and so we actually do have a sprinkling of speakers and participants from the East. We also do have a sprinkling of people who are not even IRs. Now we have some people that are in other subspecialties within radiology, we also get a sprinkling of surgeons that show up because they share similar uh, professional interests and also appreciate the free interchange of ideas 
that Western Angio offers. That's fantastic. One thing that I wanted to cover and and that that comes up with people who aren't as familiar with Western Angio or have never been, as far as attendees go, the the conference is open to whoever uh, wants to attend. Right? There's no there's no geographic restrictions, or you have to be from the U.S. or certain states within the U.S. Like anyone can go to Western Angio, right? I think that's true. I think the membership in Western Angio though is what is limited. And when it first started 50 years ago, there were only a handful of states that had IRs. And since then, we've added a bunch of other states, all of which are still west of the Mississippi. So for instance, Texas, Arizona, the Dakotas, Montana, Idaho have all been added as states where we have members of Western Angio. I'm sure I'm pretty sure we do not have members from east of the Mississippi. I know that I signed up for Western Angio to to attend the September conference way back, but Louisiana, which is where my practice is, was not included in the in the Western and Geographic Society, you know, geographics, but still all the more still welcome to to attend. That's fantastic. So Susan Jackson wanted us to ask uh, a couple of questions for you, and she sent in some very interesting questions. And these are a little bit more geared toward your particular practice or, or the history of your practice, Dan. And one of her questions that I thought was very interesting is, what do you think one of the, the greatest challenges um, that we face in interventional radiology right now and, and what you see, you know, with the tea leaves show for the next five years for interventional radiology? I think right now, one of the biggest challenges is trying to integrate ourselves into the major leagues. And this is something that uh, I emphasized at the Austin SIR meeting, that we are now a primary specialty. But I'm not sure that any of us have a great idea about what that means. We all know what diagnostic radiology is, and we have a pretty good idea of what general surgery and pediatrics and internal medicine mean. But what is it, what is it, what is, what does it mean for IR to be its own specialty? And how is that going to affect our culture, the way that we see ourselves, the way that referring physicians see us, the way that hospitals see us? And I think it's not going to be something that is going to uh, be resolved in a year or even five years. I think it's going to be a process. If you look at, for instance, radiation oncology, it took them decades really to get to the place where they are now. Another challenge that I think uh, we've identified in IR is the current lack of diversity and inclusion. Even though I don't think that any of us in the field are actively excluding people, but we have somewhere around eight or nine percent of practicing IRs are female, and of persons of um, underrepresented minorities uh, are also way below uh, what we would expect uh, based on the population of the United States, as well as the, the distribution of who our patients are. And so I think this is another challenge that not only IR, but other specialties within medicine are facing. For sure. Taking a left turn a little bit, Stanford being where it is, and we've, we've mentioned it early on in the podcast in terms of being at the heart of technology, the heart of venture capital. How has that proximity to those resources converged with your interventional radiology practice? Well, one thing is that I live in this neighborhood where I make a pretty good living as an interventional radiologist, but I'm the poorest person on the street. (laughs) 
and I work the longest hours. And so that's part of the, the problem about being a physician in this area, that there's, there's a, a lot of uh, very successful people around here. Uh, however, it's really great to live and work amongst these successful people. In general, this is not old money. This is money that came from innovation and hard work and invention. And so a lot of times, even though Stanford is an expensive place to do research, a lot of times if someone has an idea that they want to bounce off a physician, they don't have to look all over the country or the world. There are people right at Stanford that are very eager to provide whatever expertise that we can. That's so neat. Being at the, the epicenter of that in, in a field uh, like interventional radiology, that it, it's so immersed in technology, there, there just must be so much opportunity in terms of, of resource to draw upon and also resources to offer. So I can imagine that Stanford provides quite the unique environment in which to practice. And, and Stanford sometimes has been uh, criticized for this, but it actually encourages entrepreneurship, even though I have not myself been started a, a company or anything, but I've consulted for a lot of them. If you ever attend a slideshow that I give, uh, you know, the second slide of any slideshow has to be the financial conflict of in interest disclosures. And I usually have a long list of disclosures, mostly of companies that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> unfortunately, mostly of companies that eventually go under and I never actually get any profit from, but it's still fun to play that game. Sure. And then understand that one of our, one of the, the docs who helped really build Backtable, Dr. Brian Hartley, a guy that I did my residency with, he did, and, and Brian will probably uh, kill me for butchering it, but Stanford uh, Innovation and Medical Device Fellowship in which the whole fellowship is designed and revolves around thinking about how to bring companies and medical devices from basically inception to the idea to uh, all the way through market. And, and that's what he's been doing for the last couple of years. And he said it was, it was such a valuable place to, to learn these things where you're really at the heart of things. Right. That program is called the Biodesign Program. It was started by an interventional cardiologist named Paul Yock, who was just visionary in this. He was visionary long before he even started this. He essentially became wealthy by inventing a number of very useful things, including he was one of the first people to develop intravascular ultrasound. He was also the person that developed monorail. And you can imagine that, especially in the cardiology world, monorail is used on almost every catheter. So, so he started this, this program to help other entrepreneurs follow in his footsteps to do startup companies, to work with larger companies, to go through the whole process of identifying unmet medical needs, going through a process of narrowing down to what inventions might serve those un, unmet needs. And then the business aspects as well as going through IP, the legal aspects. And it's been a very, very successful program. And there have been dozens of companies spawned from that program. That's so neat. And so neat. Mo most of the IR physicians have served as, as counselors uh, or mentors in that program as well. Very cool. Um, taking another uh, left turn and, and bringing it back to Western Angio, I thought it would be fun if you shared some of your, what what could you say were your fondest memories from Western Angio, either recent or, or 26 years ago when you were presenting the first abstract? Well, that first time I was there was quite memorable. 
you can imagine as a newly minted attending, I didn't really know what to expect. I also had no money. That year it was, it was in Santa Fe and my attending Charlie Semba was going. So I asked him about it and he said, well, yeah, why don't you come along and I'll get a hotel room that we can share. And he knew I didn't have any money. And he says, no, you could just crash my hotel room. I thought, great. So we end, we show up there and it turns out the hotel room only had one bed. <laughs> so, so Charlie Sub and I shared a bed for a few days. <laughs> wow. We probably could have fit two more people in that bed because I think we were each hanging off the couch <laughs> or our ends of the bed. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. They couldn't work into two queens. You had to go with one king, one king size. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> neither one of us wanted to sleep on the floor in the bathtub. That's funny. Uh, sometimes it's, it's always like, or humble beginnings can, can always uh, be, you know, make for mo more fun uh, stories and, and certainly hijinks. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, Western Angio sounds like they really have a fantastic culture that fosters not just education, but also like cultivating relationships and being as that, you, you know, you're in the mix with, you know, 200, 300 other interventional radiologists. Can you kind of talk about some introductions or acquaintances that you've made that, that led to great professional contacts or collaborations that have kind of served you well over, or over the course of your career? I think that is a big plus of Western Angio is that people are willing to check their ego at the door, including the old dogs who are famous, who have been around forever, who have published a lot, who have devices named after them. When Even when these people show up, they're very willing to share their expertise with everyone in the room. And I think that makes a huge difference. And certainly there have been a lot of people that I've met through Western Angio Probably the most important was Hal Coombs, who I think went to the second Western Angio 49 years ago. I think he missed the first one. And Hal, of course, has a number of different devices named after him. Uh, and was really a giant in the field for decades. In addition, he's a scratch golfer. And so he was, we, we were on the same team for many years in a row and we were able to take home the trophy all those years. An audience, that's how we bring the podcast full circle. It started with golf and it ends with, and it ends with golf. <laughs> no. So it, la last question, Dan, we won't keep it too long. What can you say that you're looking forward to the most about Western Angio for 2021? Well, because of the unique culture of Western Angio, unlike meetings like SIR or Circe, where the premium is put on new science, the premium at Western Angio is put on interpersonal relationships and seeing your old friends, sharing your secrets, showing each other really cool cases, including cases where we need help and we're actually asking for the expertise of our, our colleagues and friends. So what I'm really looking forward to is that face-to-face -face, uh, meeting with my friends again, wherever, whenever Western Angel happens again. That's awesome. So guys, that about wraps things up today. So to the audience, thank you for listening. We covered an important, but also a fun topic today. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify or whatever else you use. 
uh, know that our audience value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes and leave us a short written review. This helps us in a lot of different ways. Plus, we really love getting the feedback. Sometimes it's so hilarious. That about wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back to the Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You guys may have noticed our new intro music. We're excited about it and think it's our best music yet. These guys are an up-and-coming jazz band from my city, New Orleans. So for this episode, we'll play their entire song. Please enjoy Ripperoo by the band Skeptic Moon. Thank you.